All right. Welcome. Thanks for listening to Pots, Pans, and Peppercorns. I'm Bronwyn. I will be your host with support from my producer, Sean. That's me. I wondered if this made me a vegetarian, although at that time, I didn't know anyone who was. And to be one was looked upon as a cross between an eccentricity and an affliction. Molly Katzen, 1992. Welcome to our third episode. This is going to be the first in a series of three episodes which focus on cookbooks that fundamentally shaped the way that I cook now. We'll still be doing our other regular segments too, but the main body of each episode will be about a particular cookbook and what I've learned from it. I just want to say I've been so excited to do this episode. Sean, I think I'm sure I've told you how excited I am to talk about this first cookbook. I may have heard you say something about it. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm extremely excited to talk to you in our first part today about an absolute powerhouse of a cookbook. Sean, do you know what it is? Yes, but should I be spoiling it? That's okay. I'll say what it is. So I genuinely believe that everyone should own this one, especially if you're vegetarian. If you're vegetarian and you don't own this cookbook, there's almost no excuse. This amazing book is The New Moosewood Cookbook by Molly Katzen. I think I normally hear about essential cookbooks being something like Julia Child or maybe The Joy of Cooking or something like that. Uh, but this is, so this is a little interesting uh, new to me. Yeah, this is, I consider this to be an essential cookbook. So yes, it's the new Moosewood cookbook by Molly Katzen. At the time this edition of Moosewood came out, Molly Katzen had made the New York Times top 10 list of best-selling cookbook authors. She has a ton of cookbooks. I don't have all of them, but I have some of them. Moosewood was originally published in 1977 with the new edition that I have coming out in 2000. It's a really unique book. It's printed in a font that looks like Molly's handwriting, and every recipe is accompanied by little sketches. Reading it makes me feel like I borrowed my cool hippie friend's personal recipe journal and sketchbook. It just has such a welcoming, personal vibe to it when you read the recipes. And it's the only, to this day, it's the only cookbook I've ever seen that does that. There may be others out there that are kind of in that similar style, but it's the only one that I know of that gets that personal with you. Another great thing about the new edition of the Moosewood Cookbook that I have is it's got some mouth-watering foodtography in there. There's some wonderful full-color pictures of some of the recipes from the book, and if that doesn't get you inspired to cook from this cookbook, I don't know what will. The pictures seriously look so good. I think good food photography is a bit of a theme for some of these uh, favorite books of yours that we're going to be doing in this series. There's so much you can learn from well-documented good cooking. Um, that's going to come up a lot in the next episode when we talk about Every Grain of Rice by Fuchsia Dunlop. Uh, I won't spoil that now, but that's going to definitely come into play. I'm not vegetarian, but this was my first cookbook, and what I've learned from it has formed the foundation of my cooking. This is a little surprising because even though I adore this book, rather than having made most of the recipes, I return to the same handful of recipes again and again. Except at this point, it's more like I return to the general idea of them, and now I make them mostly from memory, but I wouldn't be able to make that stuff if I didn't have this book. 
is, like I said, the foundation of a lot of my cooking. If you're in the category of cooking beginners, or if you've recently decided to go vegetarian, I know I already said it, but this book is perfect for you. If you're someone who likes to do meatless Mondays, you will also certainly get a ton of mileage out of this book. There's a story that my mom loves to tell me of when she was in college and she lived with a bunch of other people and everyone in the house would all cook for each other and they would take turns. One day, a couple of guys who weren't very experienced cooks had their turn to make dinner, but I guess they were either unsure of what to make or the things they made previously hadn't turned out very well. Apparently, my mom handed them her copy of the Moosewood cookbook and said, just make anything from in here. You can't go wrong. And I agree with this 100%. I learned how to make staples like quiche, lasagna, and chili from this book. I love the zucchini feta pancakes, the zucchinus, which is a cute name for stuffed zucchini, the gado gado, which is a beautiful Indonesian dish that I recommend serving at a party where everybody can make their own plate. If you have the patience to deal with phyllo pastry, the Greek super thin pastry, which you can buy frozen, then the mushroom strudel is also a really delicious afternoon project you can do. That recipe is just so, so good. Quiche and chili are probably the dishes I return to most often. Unfortunately, those are both things that Sean doesn't really like very much. Sorry. No, it's okay. If you like quiche, it's such a great option to have on hand for a quick breakfast or lunch. I usually make two of them at a time. I cut them into quarters and eat a quarter every morning for breakfast until they're gone. It is a little odd to me, Sean, that you don't like quiche because all it really is is scrambled eggs that are baked with stuff in them. Yeah. I get, I get that it's just not your thing, though. I'd like to talk more in depth about the chili recipe because I make chili based on this recipe frequently, even though I use a lot of my own tweaks and substitutions now. Chili also has the potential to teach us and help us practice several core aspects of cooking. And it's a great template to have in your back pocket when you want to start improvising. Chili allows us to practice knife skills for preparing all the wonderful things you can put in it, it helps us learn how to saute onions and other vegetables to get the consistency and the flavor that we like. It teaches us how to season a dish for every layer of ingredients that get added and to make sure we taste and smell our food as we make it. In addition to all of this, chili is one of those dishes that probably tastes even better the day after you make it because all the flavors have had time to blend better. It's a great dish to make in bulk at the beginning of the week and you can even choose to freeze it for future meals. I'm going to go over the recipe, then I'm gonna talk about how I do it a little bit differently. So I mentally divide chili into four parts, tomatoes, beans, other vegetables, and seasonings. Everyone's mental map of chili is different. I know there are people out there who couldn't imagine chili without meat. I love meat, but I still prefer chili without it. The moosewood recipe for chili has tomato juice, tomato paste, and canned tomatoes all filling in our tomato category. The recipe doesn't specify whether the canned tomatoes should be whole, crushed, or diced, but I use a mixture of crushed and diced. The recipe calls for kidney beans as the only beans and instructs you on how to reconstitute dried beans. Personally, I've never had success reconstituting dried beans, so I always use canned beans, and I also usually mix two to three types of beans in my chili. 
Roman beans and kidney beans are my favorite combo. For our other vegetables, we have in the recipe carrot, celery, and bell pepper. And it also includes bulgur wheat, which I don't use because I can never find it anywhere. I consider onions and garlic seasoning. So for seasonings, we have those, plus cumin, basil, chili powder, black pepper, and cayenne pepper, plus the possibility of parsley and cheese for toppings. I would say out of all of these, cumin and chili powder are the most essential. So make sure you at least have those before you make this. The recipe first has you soak the dried beans for a minimum of four hours or overnight and cook them for about 75 minutes after soaking. If you use canned beans, you can skip all of this. Then the recipe directs you to combine the bulgur wheat with the tomato juice, which has just been brought to a boil, and then to let this rest for 15 minutes and add the beans. The recipe has you saute your veggies and seasonings, only half of the garlic, in a separate pan and add them to the beans and tomato juice along with the tomatoes and tomato paste at the end. Then finish everything off by cooking over low heat and adding the rest of the garlic 15 minutes after you add the tomato juice and tomato paste. When I make chili, this recipe is still the foundation, but I do things in a bit of a different order. I also try to do everything in the same pot because I want fewer dishes at the end. What I put in my chili often depends on my mood. I've made entirely vegan chilies, I've made chili with tongue, I've made chili mac with pasta in it, and I love them all. The first thing I do is prep everything in my other veggies category into roughly the same size pieces because I want everything to cook evenly. I don't use garlic because I don't trust myself to not burn it when I cook it with the onions. Anyway, I start to saute the onions with whatever oil I have, usually olive oil, in the bottom of the pot, and when they start to smell really good, I add the other vegetables I want to use and cook them until they're tender. At the same time I add the rest of the veggies, I will put a layer of seasoning on. So this will be the cumin, the chili powder, sometimes I'll add a little bit of paprika, I'll add some salt. Whatever I'm using, I'll put a layer of it over all of the vegetables. The seasoning does also kind of depend on which vegetables I'm using. For example, if I'm using jalapenos, I'm not gonna add any cayenne pepper. If I'm not using jalapenos or anything else spicy, I might add some just to make sure the chili has a little bit of a kick. As an alternative, you can always add hot sauce to chili at the end when you're actually serving it. So when the veggies are tender and after they've been seasoned, I add the canned beans and another layer of seasoning to make sure that the beans are also getting seasoned. When I feel like everything's well incorporated, I add my cans of diced and crushed tomato. Since I used both diced and crushed, I really don't feel the need to add any juice or paste, but I don't think it would hurt anything either. I often add a can of corn at the same time as the tomatoes. Once everything is together, I add another layer of seasoning, and then I let everything cook for a while. I leave the heat somewhere between medium and low. If it starts to bubble too much, I turn it down because I want everything to cook slowly. After about a half an hour, I'll taste the chili and adjust the seasonings if I need to. This is really important to keep tasting it because you don't want to spend all this time slow cooking something that's going to be bland at the end. That's a huge disappointment. I generally let it cook anywhere from 45 minutes to a couple hours, depending on what time of day it is, how hungry I am, and when it tastes ready. That's the most important thing is when it tastes ready, it's probably ready. My most used topping is sour cream, and I'm talking about a lot of sour cream. We go through sour cream like crazy in our house. I also like cheese and scallions. And Sean, I know you're not a big chili fan, but I think you would probably agree this is a great dish to have in your back pocket. Yeah, especially for you uh, for winter. 
Yeah, you can also freeze this. You can put this in the freezer and keep it for a long time. It's also good to freeze some of this if you accidentally make too much and you know that you can't eat it all right away. I did that recently. In times like these where you don't want to go to the grocery store as often, so many of these ingredients can just come out of a can. So you can have all of this in your pantry all the time and make, what, like 10 bowls of chili yeah. from some cans? Yeah, one of my other favorite things, there's so many things that I love about chili, but one of them is that you can buy canned ingredients and things that you can store for a long time. You can you can really stock up for this if you know that you love chili and you know that you want to plan on making it at some point. You can just stock up for this. Sometimes, I don't know when ShopRite has their can-can sale normally, but ShopRite has a what they call the can-can sale either once or twice a year. And even if it's not in the winter, because I only really make chili in the winter, Whenever they have the can-can sale, I can just stock up on canned beans and canned tomatoes. And then when it's time to make chili, I might not even have to go back out. So yeah, in the time of the pandemic, it's a really, really good plan to have to be able to make a recipe that's mostly canned goods. And then when it's made, you can freeze part of it and you can eat it for a really long time. I also just find chili very comforting, especially when it starts to get cold. And then when it is very cold, like right we now had, yeah like right now we had we had a pretty big snow in philly or not not real big but icy yeah it's icy it's really cold it was super windy on the day of the storm it's definitely for me it's chilly weather so if you think that this chili recipe sounds good or if i've piqued your interest with my description of the moosewood cookbook i highly recommend going out and getting a copy my copies of molly katzen's other cookbooks i actually found in a box outside for free. So if you can find if you can find a copy of this cookbook in somebody's little free library or if you can you can probably get one at a regular library if if they're open, you know, if you go out to the library, take precautions, wear your mask, all that. Um, or maybe you can borrow a copy from somebody that you know. It's seriously such a great cookbook. It's a really really good one to have in your library. Even if you're not super into cookbooks, this is one to have because it's got so many recipes. Again, if you're learning how to cook, you're going to learn so much from this book. And if you're vegetarian, you're going to get a lot of value from this book because every recipe is vegetarian. And if you're not vegetarian and if you don't want to be vegetarian, you can just add meat to these recipes. I've done that too. I don't put meat in my chili, for example, but you know, if I was going to make the mushroom strudel or the quiche, I put canned salmon in the quiche because I think that adds something to it. So you can just adjust these recipes. They're really fun to play with once you've made them a couple times. Yeah, you never know when you uh, might be entertaining a vegetarian guest and uh, one of these might be really handy, right? Yeah, exactly. And you can also, the vast majority of them can be adjusted to be vegan nowadays because there's so many good vegan substitution options out there. You can... You can use vegan cream cheese. I used to use a lot of vegan cream cheese in my dishes. I think it's really good because you can season it to taste like basically whatever you want. It's a really good blank slate. And it is actually very creamy. I think it's made out of tofu. I would buy the tofuti one. That's a great ingredient to have on hand too. I've never frozen it before. I don't know if that's something that you can do. I don't know if that would affect the texture. Well, cream cheese, even, even non-vegan cream cheese, regular cream cheese. Conventional cream <laughs> cheese. Uh, which is actually cream or cheese or something. Yeah. Um, you can 
do a surprising number of things with as well, right? You I can, mean, yeah. You, you've made some uh, pretty interesting dips out of it, right? And you make... Yeah, there's a buffalo chicken dip that I really like to make. But you can... That, you can just take the chicken out of. And you can make that vegetarian. True. Or if you, if you take the chicken out, and if you take the cream cheese out, and substitute the vegan cream cheese, then, then it's vegan. And I think I've done that before, too. Because all you have to do is add Frank's Red Hot to the cream cheese, and boom, you have creamy Frank's Red Hot dip. It's delicious. Yeah, that makes sense. I like to put that on bagels sometimes. All right, as much as I would like to spend the rest of this afternoon talking about how much I love creamy Frank's Red Hot dip, I don't really have any big housekeeping, but I just want to thank everybody for continuing to show interest in the show, follow us on Instagram, listen to the show, all that kind of stuff. We really appreciate your support from everybody. And you can always interact with us on Instagram, or you can email us at potspanspeppercorns at gmail.com. We would love to answer questions or help with food dilemmas if you have them. Or just hear about what you're doing. Yeah, we're interested to hear what kind of stuff everybody who's listening likes to cook. And, you know, if you have any tweaks or um, things that you do to recipes that you make that you found work better than the original. If you have interesting uses for kitchen gadgets that people might not have thought of before. Anything anything you want to share related to able, food. We might be able to do a, a user-submitted recipe and see how it goes. Yeah, we could do that. If there's a recipe that you want us to try making, if there's a recipe you want us to try making that you maybe tried to make and it didn't come out the way you thought it would, or if you want us to try it out for you before you do it, we're happy to do that too. We're happy to test stuff out. We really like to do things like that. Or if there's a restaurant recreation that you want us to try to do, that's something I want to do a lot more of is trying to recreate meals that we've had at different restaurants, especially ones that are gone. All right, well, that's all I have for housekeeping. Let's move on to our in memory segment. We're going to talk about, oof, this one, this one really hurts. To, this hurts to say goodbye to, Sean. Um, Sean, I know you know this, that I am a milkshake fanatic, or at least a chocolate milkshake fanatic. I love chocolate so much, I can never bring myself to give other flavors a chance. I know you like to you like to tease me about this. It's sad, really. You're leaving a, a lot of good options on the table. I know that, but at the same time, chocolate is so good that I kind of don't care. <laughs> said. What can I say? Sean, I'm sure you can think back to summer evenings when we've we felt like going for a bit of a walk, maybe all the way to Center City. Absolutely. One of our favorite places to get a milkshake, one or for me to get a milkshake, maybe Sean would get something else. Uh, one of our favorite places to do this was a place called More Than Just Ice Cream. And indeed, they did have more than just ice cream. I mean, you get an awesome dessert waffle. Oh, yeah. Scoop of some fun ice cream on it. That'd be, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's, oh, God, that's such a classic dessert. But this year, they served their final scoops, final sandwiches and waffles before closing down business for good. After More Than Just Ice Cream closed, I learned that they had been open for 43 years, which is really cool, and it makes the closure even more sad. It's like a multi-generational ice cream shop. Or more than ice cream shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really, 
sad to hear of something that stuck it out for that long to just be finished off by the stupid pandemic. I was trying to count this out in years, but it's like people could have gone to that as a date spot and then their kids could have gone to it as a date spot and then almost their kids. Yeah. (laughs) But not quite. I didn't realize it had been such a long-standing Center City institution. Yeah. But beyond the great desserts and other food, they had sandwiches and stuff too. Beyond that, uh, more than just ice cream actually played another role in my life too. They were a business where people could leave flyers and cards promoting local events. And I used to do cat adoption events for ACCT Philly. And this was one of the spots where I would leave my flyers for the adoption events. It was always nice to promote at a place with ice cream. And I regret not visiting more. Sean, is there anything else you want to say about more than just ice cream? I know that we both really loved going there. I think it's worth saying something about it being kind of a a mainstay of the neighborhood. Um, It's not like completely independent of its location, right? Yeah, you know, that's fair. Yeah, um, it has a, a long history. I, I didn't realize it went back to 1977. Mm-hmm. And when when we go and or rather when we used to go, RIP, and we'd see, you know, every kind of couple there for a date. Yeah, and it's really sweet. I think it's just really cute. And uh, I think it's not lost on me that that's very unsurprising looking now but uh times past i think it stood for something for some people as more than just a place to get more than just ice cream but a place where you can feel welcome and comfortable being themselves yeah it's really important for there to be places where people are safe to be themselves no matter who they are and who they love i think that's a really good point I wish lots of success in whatever comes next for their staff. We're really sorry to see them go. Sean, let's talk about our meals of the week, because I have a pretty good one. I think you do, too. I'm a little worried that it's just going to be the same, so I don't really want to talk over yours. But uh, my my meal of the week fairly easily was coming home from work completely burnt one night and finding that there was still a pan full of fried rice on the stove that had not been touched by any of our cats. <laughs> uh, and I was able to just turn the burner on for a few minutes and have a really good, like, come home late night meal and go to bed. <laughs> it was awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was nice and it's like good crunchy vegetables in there. Tasted great. Yeah, I think I made that batch with little red peppers that we got from Oregon Market and some cabbage and plenty of scallions. That was also my meal of the week, the same batch of fried rice, which I saved half for Sean. But I put pineapples in mine because I love pineapple fried rice. I think it's one of the greatest things ever. We were gifted a fresh pineapple at my job and it was at peak ripeness. I took it home because we're going to be closed at my work for about a week. So I got the delight and privilege of bringing home a big chew toy for our cats. Yeah, our cats (laughs) like to chew on the pineapple leaves on the edges. I don't know why. I think this is a common thing with cats, but ours especially like to chew on the leaves. But yes, I had the honor of cutting up this perfectly ripe pineapple and I made sure to put plenty of it in my fried rice. 
Fantastic. Yeah, so essentially we both had the same meal of the week. I also had the hot and sour mushroom soup from Every Grain of Rice with my fried rice. So I think that was a pretty good combo. Sean, you did not try the soup, correct? I did not. That's okay. I know soup is not really your thing, which I both do and don't understand. (laughs) (sighs) Sorry. I don't know. I think we talked about the sort of like flavor mixing Mm -hmm. thing. I kind of like the distinct things separate. Like, I don't know, even in fried rice, it's like, sure, one bite might have all, I don't know, five different elements, but they kind of each have their own thing a little bit more than when they're in a soup. Yeah, you like flavors to retain their distinct character. Um, And I know with soup, you you said you feel like everything kind of tastes like each other a little too much. So I I can appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know. That's maybe it's that's really stupid of me. It kind of is. <laughs> I mean, you can have you can have an opinion. It's okay. <laughs> I I actually have a piece of food news that uh, you might be interested in, Sean. All right, drop that on me. <laughs> <laughs> Roll that beautiful food footage. Well, this is a podcast, so I don't have any footage. But uh, Philly Mag just did a feature recently on the best fried chicken in the city. And one of our favorite restaurants, Biology, Biology, Biology was on the list for one of the best places to get fried chicken because their Taiwanese fried chicken is on point. Yeah, it really is. I mean, okay, that was not even remotely on my radar for best fried chicken in the city. Um, Coincident. All right. (laughs) I think biology is a bit of a uh, magazine darling because I feel like every list that comes out, they're on it. They are on a lot of lists and I think they deserve to be frankly. I mean, they are. I mean, you think name, name some places we've gone to like six times in the last I don't know, 18 months or something. I mean, I think they're they're on a very short list, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, have we actually, have we done it six times? Probably not. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe? All right, I think, we'll edit this all out. <laughs> I think one of, one of the greatest but understated things about biology is that the people who run it are extremely nice and warm and... And present. They're actually and there. And present. Yeah, they're there. <laughs> yeah. And they'll talk to you. Yeah, the couple that own the place are are there in the kitchen. Yeah. And for a, a place that, like, borders on fast casual kind of, like, they're very easy to... They're very approachable. They're they're approachable. That was the word I was looking for. And they also have a little, they have like a tiny little collection of cookbooks that you can look at while you wait. And one time we were there and I took one of the cookbooks down to look at it. And the guy was like, oh, are you interested in that? And he talked to me about the book and about. It was a bread book. No, it wasn't a bread book. It was Alain Ducasse's um, vegetables book. Oh, okay. But he was like, oh, are you a fan? And I was like, well, I, this is the first time I've looked at one of his books. But, you know, 
he was just right there with like, you know, wanting to make a connection and be friendly. And it was just an awesome thing. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. However, on this fried chicken list, can I can I take can I take another guess? Well, the article is for subscribers only, so I oh, can't read it. <laughs> All right. So so Bao made it. They did. All right, Bao made it. I'm going to guess uh Federal Donuts made it. Probably. Which, which puts two places on the list that are not like necessarily a 100% like fried chicken joint, right? That's kind of interesting. It is interesting. And hmm. I I'm going to I'm going to continue this, this thread off into nowhere uh, as we cannot read this behind uh, subscriber-only wall, paywall article. Um, Actually, can I just say for a second that Biology sells a Taiwanese fried chicken quote-unquote bucket, which is two legs and two wings. I'm looking at the picture. I just need it now you need this in your life i need it immediately i might order this after you go to work (laughs) all right enjoy (laughs) um i was just talking with my coworkers last night about like cravings for our old menu like when our my workplace has a uh a kitchen normally um but now it you know the menu is basically non- functioning and it, we're just being fed by the uh, chef and owner on a day-to-day basis so we get a, a staff meal together which is really nice yeah you you all eat pretty well over there well i mean yeah we're we're all being fed by a professional chef daily i mean so that it's not i'm not saying it's a bad deal um but there's certain things that we miss sometimes we were talking about this last night uh when when we would have two or more shows a night and um you get into the bar menu hours mm-hmm. like bar menu only uh their fries are really good and but oh yeah we did talk about but this the wings are legitimately some of the best wings i have had in this region and wow yeah i mean they're they're generously sized. They're not the tiny little ones. Um, the uh, whatever batter or breading or whatever they're doing is is great. I feel like they're they're never burned. They must change the oil all the time because you know a lot of places you get fried chicken. It's like oh, this is dark and it's not because it was cooked too long. It's like this oil could have been changed sooner. <laughs> You know, we run into that at home, too, because we do a fair amount of frying Someti- at home. Yeah, sometimes we go through phases with it. But yeah, um, start with a coworker like, man, I really miss getting that uh, entirely too large portion of basket of fries and our wings on late night. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It both keeps you going and also makes you ready to just get tucked in and go to sleep mm-hmm. I can imagine <laughs> uh, how do you order on biology is it caviar I think it's caviar we could do a whole episode on them it's such a good place 
Maybe we will sometime. Maybe we'll go mobile and do a little interview. Ooh. That'd be fun. That would be awesome. I would love to do that. I know they're very busy. Yeah, this is a uh, this is this is a COVID twenty thing, rather than COVID nineteen. Oh, thanks. <laughs> this is an interesting thing about biology that I just learned. They offer a couple of pantry items. You can buy chicken bone broth from them, and you can also buy whipped lardo, which is made from lard. Wow. Oh. Oops, I almost ordered it for delivery. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that the the joy and excitement of this episode was evident to everybody listening. It makes me very, very happy to be able to share how important the Moosewood Cookbook is to me, and I am equally excited about the next episode. We're going to be talking about Fuchsia Dunlop's cookbook, Every Grain of Rice, Simple Chinese Home Cooking. That is another one that has really, really changed the way that I cook completely. It's changed the way that we shop. It's changed where we shop and how we shop and what things we keep in our pantry. So that's going to be a big one. That one may also get fairly personal because I'm going to be thinking back to the time when I decided to get more serious about cooking at home. And there's a lot of, you know, as as usual in our lives, there is a lot of personal stuff going on at that time. And I'm not going to get too into it, but we may talk about it a bit. So there may be some heavy spots in the next episode, but it's going to be balanced out with um with some Joy. happy. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be balanced out with some, for sure. Because cooking and eating, they bring us a lot of joy. They make us feel good, and it's a great, great part of our lives. And we hope, we hope that those things are a great part of your lives, too. So thank you so much for joining us on our third episode, and we hope that you take care and be safe. And we look forward to being with you again soon. Pots, Pans, and Peppercorns is produced by Sean Swadlinak, written by Bronwyn Hinkle, and edited by by Sean Swadlinak and Bronwyn Hinkle.